This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. And I'm asking on this pod, would you date outside your political bubble? Like, how comfortable would you be having a partner that maybe doesn't hold the same political beliefs as you? Because we've got some research out recently showing young women are becoming more progressive than young men. So if that is the case, what is the impact on society, relationships, dating more broadly? We're going to be getting into this one and also hearing about these political trends in younger Australians. They're really interesting and what they tell us about society. First, though, we're diving into negative gearing. Pack. Realistically, now, the only way we're going to fix that, one of the first steps is phasing out negative gearing. On Triple J. Yeah, every time we talk about housing on Hack, we get so many messages saying, but why doesn't the government just get rid of negative gearing? And you might be hearing a lot more about negative gearing this week because it's kicking around politics, as it does every few years. We start to hear heaps about it. It's basically a tax incentive for investors. And obviously a lot of older people benefit from it. And some, like the Greens, are saying, well, we need to be changing it. It'll help ease the housing crisis, make it fairer for young people. The Greens are actually saying that they're only going to support the government's housing policy that they're trying to pass if the government restricts negative gearing. Now, in a minute, we're going to hear from an expert about the impact of negative gearing on the housing situation, if it really is stopping you from buying a home. But first, here's Shalila Madora to remind us exactly what it is. Negative gearing, I suppose, is shorthand for a way of planning your tax affairs using investment properties to pay a lot less tax. That's ABC political reporter and resident economics nerd Tom Crowley. So if you're running a rental property and it's making a loss, maybe your mortgage payments are more than what you're getting from your tenants, then you can chop that off your tax bill. Fun fact, negative gearing has been part of our tax system since the 1920s, more than 100 years. As Tom explains, heaps of politicians have tried and failed to get rid of it. The politics are really difficult. It's something that at different points has got in principle support from people from different ends of politics, but then you get into the messy business of actually trying to make that change and, of course, upsetting the voters who are benefiting from negative gearing or who might want to benefit from it in future. That's where it's gotten a bit messier. The Hawke government tried to scrap it in 1985 but brought it back after massive backlash less than two years later. And the reasons why sound pretty familiar. The Treasurer, Mr Keating, has strongly denied claims that rents will rise because of the tax changes announced yesterday. It's a debate that didn't just die back then. Even the members of the current government tried to get rid of negative gearing for new investors. I have learnt my lesson. I take tax reform to the election and all we got at the end of it was Scott Morrison. <laughs> Since that election loss under Bill Shorten in 2019, Labor, now in government, has promised not to touch it. We're supportive of the current rules. We have, have, have not considered uh, changes to them. Well, that's not something that we are proposing or doing any work on. The government's not keen to wade back into the politically tricky debate, but it might not have a choice. The Greens and some crossbenchers are pushing for change. If the government can shift on stage three, then they sure as hell can shift on capital gains tax concessions and negative gearing. Capital gains tax discount uh, and negative gearing are something that we're going to have to have a discussion about. It is part of the reason um, that we're having a housing crisis out there. The government's trying to get its help to buy scheme through the Senate and it needs all the votes it can get because the coalition doesn't support it. 
The Help to Buy scheme lets people buy a home with a smaller deposit in exchange for the government taking a share of the equity. It's meant to make it easier for younger Aussies to crack the housing market. We're always open to negotiations, but we certainly aren't just going to roll over and support a scheme that on its own is actually just going to make the housing crisis worse. As Greens MP Max Chandler-Mather said, the Greens don't love the Help to Buy program. They've said they will support it, however, if the government scales back negative gearing. If you got rid of negative gearing tomorrow, there would be renters going to auctions who for the first time would have a chance against property investors. I think it's always going to be difficult. Tom Crowley says fewer and fewer people are owning their homes now than in the past. So maybe it is time to wade into the negative gearing debate. Even comparing today to 2019, the, the case for change, especially among young people, might have shifted and the politics might have shifted. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. I want to get into it a bit more, but we are hearing already different opinions on the text line. Shane says negative gearing allows people who already have money to become wealthier and pay less tax. Is it a coincidence that politicians who own investment properties taking advantage of negative gearing, they don't want to get rid of it? That's Shane's question. Another person says scrapping negative gearing will drive away investors, which increases the shortage of houses, won't decrease house prices as demand will be driven up. Let's find out if that's true. We've got an expert with us, Joey Maloney, an economist with the Grattan Institute. He knows everything about housing and he's even come in on his day off to break it all down for us. G'day, Joey. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on again. Negative gearing, we hear a lot of people banging on about it, especially now. Politicians are calling for restrictions on it. Some people saying we should scrap it altogether. My first question is, would that help the housing crisis? The short answer is it would. But the longer answer is it would, but not much. So I think reform to negative gearing is probably a necessary thing to happen to fix our housing woes. But by itself, I would expect its impact to be marginal. But that's not to say that reforming negative gearing isn't good policy. Just because its impact isn't as big as some people think it is doesn't mean that it's not bad policy that doesn't need to be fixed. So do we have any idea how big the impacts would be? Yeah, we've done some work at the Grattan Institute previously. So we think that its effect on prices is probably that it pushes them up only about 2% uh, more than otherwise. And then on the rents thing, it's a bit more complicated. Some people argue that removing it would actually increase rent. Some people say it has no impact on rents. The evidence and views are a bit mixed there. I don't have a super firm view, but my sense is that it probably would have very little impact on rents if we if we removed it or even just reformed it. So saying that, do you think that there does need to be reform in that area with negative gearing? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd probably say the principal reason is less to do with housing affordability and more to just do with um, fairness in the budget. You know, we've got a structural budget deficit and What we're trying to do with our budget is fund a lot of important things that society has said that they value. Things like the National Disability Insurance Scheme, things like better quality aged care. Now, those things cost money, and right now our budget's operating with not enough money to fund all those things. And so the first thing we should be looking at is is inequitable leakages from our tax system, and negative gearing is right up the top of the list for me because it's a tax concession that goes to... 
landlords and property investors who are by definition people that are already wealthy and probably could afford to pay a bit more tax towards these important social programs that we're trying to build out. Well, I did want to ask about that because who does benefit from negative gearing? Because sometimes you do hear... You know, if you make changes to this policy, it's going to hurt mum and dad investors, middle class Australia. What's your take? Yeah, I think the word, the term mum and dad investors, I mean, there's not a better one out there, but it is it is one that's sort of tortured the debate in this space for a while because I think it leads people to really picture uh, regular middle class families just trying to get ahead. Now, if you look hard enough, you'll find a normal middle class family, maybe nurse, police officer who are invested in property and are negatively geared. But when you you sort of zoom out and look at the data as a whole, what you see is uh, it disproportionately favours wealthier and higher income people and it disproportionately favours older people because they're more more likely to own investment properties and it disproportionately favours males because they're also more likely to own investment properties. So, you know, in the scheme of of a structural budget deficit and the need to fund the aged care of an ageing population, a tax break that favours wealthier, older people seems like a good place to start. Why is it then that there's been this very strange position on it? Like, it's kind of like a poison chalice. Some politicians get really awkward talking about this one, uh, you know, one thing. I think I think it's... It's got its its benefits have been exaggerated, right? So I think you know when people talk about what it might do to rents if we remove it, what they're saying is renters are actually the beneficiaries of this policy because what it does is by giving a subsidy to investors, it leads to lower rents than otherwise. Now, like I said before, that is a bit of a shaky proposition, um, and so I think that people are probably primed to think that oh, we need to keep this, otherwise renters will suffer. But also, like we were talking about before, I think people have a sense that it's a policy that, you know, broadly benefits middle Australia, which isn't quite true. We've got a message here actually to that point saying if they got rid of negative gearing, would they not just up the rent price? Like what do you think the impact would be on renters? Yeah, like I said before, it's that's a, it's a tricky question. There's mixed evidence on this and there's mixed views my view is that its impact would be rather small. I mean, if you think in the first instance, people talk about, well, negative gearing incentivizes property investment. So if we remove it, then there's less of an incentive for people to invest in property. And the argument is that people investing in property are providing more rentals. And the more rentals there are, the cheaper rent should be. What that kind of misses is that if a property investor decides not to buy a property because they can't negatively gear it anymore, then presumably the property's been bought by someone else to live in it. And presumably that person was previously renting if they're a first home buyer. And so what you get is the kind of the net result in terms of the balance of demand and supply for the market of, uh, for, for in the housing market is a bit, is, is null. So I wouldn't expect much of a rent uh, impact on there. But look, I think just more broadly, if we're, if we're going to seriously ask the question, what policies should we have? If we're willing to sort of either spend money or not tax money, which are, you know, conceptually pretty similar things, to try to benefit renters, subsidies to landlords would not be at the top of my list. There's a bunch of other things I'd be looking at first if our goal is to help renters. Okay, well, let's get into that. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with Joey Maloney, housing expert from the Grattan Institute about negative gearing, calls for it to be wound back, uh, also housing policy more broadly. Joey, what do you think does need to be the priority in terms of housing policy, what the government should be focusing on? 
I think the single biggest priority right now should be an increase in the Commonwealth rent assistance payment. So this is a payment in our welfare system. It's a supplement to people on other income support payments. So someone on a job seeker or someone on the age pension or the disability support pension. It's a supplement that acknowledges that uh, it costs a lot to rent in the private rental market. Now, they raised it last year by 15%, but our research has shown that that's not quite enough. We've previously said it needs to go up at least 40%, probably more. Now, in the scheme of what's currently happening in the private rental market, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are acutely aware of this, that private rents have gone up at a pretty rapid clip lately, the priority is should be to protect those most vulnerable, those who are least able to bear a rent increase. And Commonwealth Rent Assistance puts money directly into their pocket. So it's a policy that you can do quickly, it's direct, and it would help ease the burden for people doing it toughest right now in the private rental market. So in my mind, that's got to be priority number one. We've got, you know, politicians talking about housing at the moment. Obviously, the government's got this help to buy housing scheme that it wants passed. What do you think about what we're going to see around housing in the lead up to the next federal election next year? Because we did see a bit about housing at the last election. Do you think that's really going to ramp up over the next 12 months? I think it has to. I mean, I think what we've seen in the last 18 months or so in the private rental market um, has just sharpened people's focus. I think it's very, very clear to a growing cohort of young people that are renting for longer that conditions in the rental market are inadequate. They're just, they're just, um, people are just not satisfied with the status quo. So they'll be looking to the governments, particularly the federal government, to do more on this front. So I suspect that as we get closer to the election, both parties will be competing to show that they are taking the housing situation seriously and are putting more policies on the table. Well, hey, we'll be checking in with you and you'll be across it all, I'm sure. Economist Joey Maloney from the Grattan Institute, really appreciate you coming on Hack. Thanks for breaking all that down. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And we've got some more messages coming through. Someone says, I wouldn't have afforded to buy into the housing market if not for negative gearing. Someone else says, have a cap on the amount that can be negatively geared. We don't need people with so many investment properties. That's ridiculous. That was from Mo. Time to move on. Hack. So you hideously left wing, yeah? I'm hideously left wing, yeah. Oh dear. Not sure that's what she was hoping for. On Triple J. Yeah, we've all heard the term opposites attract. But is it true when it comes to politics? Could you date someone who you didn't agree with politically? We know Gen Z are more progressive or left-leaning than previous generations, but would it surprise you to know that young women are more left-leaning than men? There's this divide happening in some countries around the world where women are becoming more progressive and men are becoming more conservative. Is that the case here? Well, our reporter Angel Parsons has been looking into it and figuring out whether this gap could impact our lives. What are your thoughts on dating someone with different political views than yourself? I just don't think it would work. I had a recent relationship breakup over conflicting thoughts about a Andrew Tate video. Opposites can definitely attract. Let's think back to the turn of the century. Kathy Freeman wins at the Sydney Olympics. This song's released. And it's around the time something unusual is starting to happen with young voters here in Australia. Young men and young women around the year 2000 had very similar political views on a lot of issues. And it's why I'm talking to political scientist Sean Ratcliffe from Accent Research. And then over time, both have shifted a little bit to the left 
but that shift is, has been greater for young women, so we've seen a gap open up. Generational gaps are nothing new, i.e. clashing with your uncle at family dinner, but a gender divide where young women are more left-leaning than young men, that is raising eyebrows. If anything, prior to the 1990s, women were probably overall a little bit more conservative than men. And, and if we look at, at voting patterns now, women that belong to the baby boom generation have sort of similar political attitudes to men in the same generation. And I'm curious to see how that's playing out in our lives. When you've planned your whole lives together based on their first photo and scroll down and see that they're not political. <laughs> but before we get into that, a quick glossary. When we talk about Gen Z, we're talking about people born from 1996 onwards. And as for the political terms... What does it mean to be liberal or progressive versus conservative? These are changing meanings and it's a moving feast. Uh, but generally in Australia in 2024, what we mean by conservative is usually a combination of two different things. So one is social conservatism. So that's holding views about social and moral issues that tend to prefer traditional attitudes and traditional behaviours. So usually someone we would describe as socially conservative might be someone that holds a mix of views that could include uh, opposition to same-sex marriage, uh, could include uh, a preference for lower immigration rates. It could uh, include opposition to abortion. Now, that doesn't mean that every person that's considered socially conservative holds all those views, while social progressives or social liberals tend to have the opposite views on at least some of those issues. But then we've also got an economic dimension. So if we're, we're talking about someone that's economically conservative or on the right on economics, we're usually talking about someone that's that prefers smaller government, so lower taxes and, and lower spending on government programs. So if there is a difference in how men and women feel about these things, I'm asking you, do you care? My name is Tegan Lerm. I use she, her pronouns. I co-run a climate organisation called Project Planet. I guess I sit pretty far left in my political views because it's such a big part of my life. Like, I don't think I could have someone in my life that I'm dating that doesn't see that and value that and also, like, have those values themselves. Tegan helps run a podcast and Instagram page all about how people can engage with climate action. So I think it is such, a, like, a key part of who I am and, like, the path that I see my life going in in the future. On the other side of things, Aiden has a different take. I certainly would date someone who's politically opposite to me. He actually works for a conservative politician and he's conservative himself. Uh, I think it depends on the person and who they are as a person and how they interact with you more than the politics. The problems always seem to happen when politics is your entire identity and you don't understand how anyone could believe something different to how you feel right now. Aiden is drawn to conservatism in part because it's helped him through some personal stuff. The day that I decided to try and just fix my life up a bit and try and be better, that wasn't the day everything fixed, but it spoke to those conservative ideals of, all right, no one else is coming to save you. So my name's TJ, I'm 26 years old. I'm living in Dunedin, New Zealand at the moment, but I spent five months in Mackay a couple of years ago and I spent three years in Melbourne. TJ says conservative values have also helped him with personal struggles, but in a different way. The importance of mental health and like staying fit and um, just being masculine, that there's no problem with being masculine and 
And if you want to be traditional, you can be traditional. TJ finds value in people like Andrew Tate. Tate's an internet celebrity often criticised for his misogynistic views and right now is facing serious allegations, including human trafficking, which he denies. But a survey by Australian group The Man Cave last year found a third of the 500 teenage boys they surveyed do find Tate relatable. And TJ can see why. I think the original attraction to things he was saying was he was just, he was confident and he was bold and he didn't care of the repercussions that he would say what he thought was right. And as a conservative guy who does find value in people like Andrew Tate, what's your experience been speaking with progressive women who might feel differently to you? Like, is that a challenge? Is there quite like a divide there? Yep, there's definitely a divide. Um, I had a recent um, relationship breakup over um, conflicting thoughts about a um, Andrew Tate video. While Aiden and TJ can offer some of the perspectives of men leaning away from the left, as a whole, Gen Z is actually more left-leaning than older generations when they were the same age. Sean Ratcliffe knows this because he's crunched the numbers from the Australian Election Survey and the Cooperative Election Survey. At least based on the data I've seen, it doesn't look like young men in Australia are becoming more conservative in general. They're actually becoming more progressive or or more left-leaning on a lot of political issues as well. Just it's happening faster and to a greater extent amongst young women. And he doesn't suspect that the gender gap is big enough here in Australia to be shattering the common ground between men and women. But the people I spoke to wonder if little differences are impacting our lives. I know a lot of people who are just choosing to stay single because they think it's too hard to try and compromise with conflicting opinions. I work in the climate. It's such a female-dominated industry. It's interesting to see how like those pathways play out and like it does make sense to me that there is that divide and it is widening. This is Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update, hearing from so many of you right now. I was asking before what this political gender gap could mean for society and someone's messaged in, you know what it means, it means more lesbians. That's what they said. On Instagram, a heap of messages. Maddie says, no, morals can't be opposite. Meredith says, my partner is the political opposite. It's interesting and really challenging, but very thought-provoking and pushes me to consider other perspectives. That was Meredith's take. Kate says, it depends on values. If they don't believe all humans deserve dignity and rights, probably not. And then someone else says, I'm gay and I usually share political views with most people I date. Let's hear from some people who've called up now. Georgia from Perth is on the line. Georgia, you've been through this. You you did date someone who had a different view to you. How did it go? I sure did, yeah. Um, he was a bit more conservative and right-leaning than I was. And I would consider myself pretty progressive. Mm. Um And basically what that meant for us was I found myself being challenged on a lot of my views and strongly held opinions. And whilst I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing, it definitely has to come from a place of respect and open-mindedness. Otherwise, conflict definitely can arise. Okay. And so how did it go, Georgia, can I ask? Well, we are no longer together, but Uh it actually wasn't the reason we ended things. He was very respectful and we always found the common ground. But um, I do think that it can be conflicting when you're dating someone and you love someone and they have totally different opinions to you. Hey, Georgia, thank you for that. Chase has also got an experience. Chase, what happened to you? 
Yeah, well, it's a funny story, actually. My partner and I, when I first saw his account, he was campaigning for the Liberals, and I was like, absolutely not. Um, and then he popped up again on a different platform, and we matched, we've hit it off, and been together for a year and a half, expecting wow. our first baby um, in a couple of months. <laughs> well, it, it, it happens, and it works for you. So congratulations, and thank you for calling in with that experience. I really appreciate it. We're hearing all kinds of experiences. I want to keep this chat going uh, with some who's been looking into it. Uh, Interfa Chowdhury is a youth politics researcher at Flinders Uni and she's with us now. Interfa, thanks for coming on Hack. This research is interesting, finding young women are becoming more progressive than men. I guess the question that we all have is why? Oh, there are multiple reasons for it. Um, some are like global reasons, for example, increase in uh, higher education levels among women, particularly tertiary education, which is kind of delaying, you know, all these uh, other markers of adulthood, such as getting married and sort of conservative political and societal structure of having a family and then sort of going into familiar roles and uh, responsibilities. So those things are being delayed, obviously, which also means that um, there has been an increase in women across generations in the labor force and social organizations such as unions, which means that women are more aware of and discussing more gender-based injustices and kind of being able to voice out against them as well as we saw in um, the Me Too campaign. I was going to ask if that kind of social movement did have an impact like Me Too, for instance. So it's interesting that you say that, that we are starting to see the effects of that uh, maybe years later. Just to be clear, though, it's not that young women are becoming progressive and all young men are going conservative. It's showing, the trends are showing that they are kind of moving in the same direction, but just at a slower rate? It depends on where. So context is very important. So the Financial Times reported about how there's a global trend of men standing still or becoming more and more conservative, supporting far-right parties in countries like Germany and also um, South Korea. So, you know, there are examples from all around the world. But, you know, I was quite curious about what's happening in Australia. So I looked at Australian election study since 1996 to 2022 and I saw that our young men are actually moving in the same direction as our young women, although obviously at a very different pace, at a much slower pace, but our young men are definitely bucking that trend, that international trend that we see elsewhere. But what's really happening across generations is that transition to adulthood has been protracted which means people are younger for longer. So what I mean by that is if you look into like, let's say our parents or grandparents' generation, and by the mid-20s, they had a stable job, they were probably homeowners, um, you know, they had a family, they settled in, stable residence. But accruing all those things is much harder for younger people, which means that they're younger for longer. I mean, is it also the case that young people generally have politics as a central part of their identity more than previous generations? Like they're more likely to express how they feel politically, know how their friends vote? That's a very interesting question, Dave. So there are two things that we need to think about about the world today, right? So people are more exposed voice to politics today than they were in previous generations. So even if you identify as someone who is apolitical, does not have anything to do with politics, you will have some sort of exposure 
to some sort of politics in the digital space. So this is something different, like, you know, in previous generations, for example, the, the social media divide, the, there wasn't a social media where politics was discussed. It wasn't a platform where you could uh, learn about others' political views, but also express your own. So that's obviously something that is encouraging people to learn more, but also express more and engage more. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese, and I'm speaking with researcher Interva Chowdhury about trends with political views, young people, research finding men are leaning more progressive, uh, more slowly than women. Uh, getting a lot of messages through on this one. Interva, I did want to ask you, though, we're hearing from a lot of people now that they can't date people with different political views. I'm wondering if you find that surprising. Not surprising, actually. I mean, I've seen um, that politics is increasingly becoming like a deal breaker, especially for women. And this kind of reflects like a trend that we see in the US, for example, where women, particularly like Democrats, so uh, left of centre party, so the Democrats, um, who are saying that they're they're actually not willing to date across the aisle. And, you know, especially considering their context, you know, they've got, they had like an ultra conservative president in Trump, right? Someone who was, uh, I would argue, quite sexist, quite racist. And, you know, he became president and then there was the Me Too movement. And, and the big one is the overturning of the Roe versus Wade case, right? So obviously women are definitely, particularly women are definitely factoring that in into their romantic decisions because someone's political views can actually give like a sense of and be a reflection of their core values. And when you are actually choosing for a mate, so wouldn't be surprised if politics is a factor that people are uh, factoring in (laughs) while dating. And is it something that like you and your friends talk about, politics, dating, that kind of thing? Oh, percent I mean I mean mostly my girlfriends they talk a lot about their experience about the toxic court and court dating culture but also how censorious they have become but then men on the other hand my male friends say things like oh um you know I I tend to say that I'm I'm liberal so little l because if I if I say I'm moderate, then I, I wouldn't be getting as many hits or swipe, uh, right, swipes. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's people yeah. being a bit strategic about it as well. That's interesting to hear. Yeah. They're not only men. I mean, women as well, but they do all sorts of things to get a date. Wow. Well, I'm keen to test that theory. If there are other <laughs> people out there who are doing similar things, maybe being very <laughs> conscious of what they're putting to make sure they're getting the right amount of attention on the dating apps. Love to hear from you. But for now, into the Chowdhury Youth Politics Researcher at Flinders Uni, very much appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on Hack. No, thank you. Hack on Triple J. A lot of messages coming through. A lot of thoughts on this one. Josh from Fitzroy says, if we can't date someone with different political leanings, that indicates that we're not willing to learn, think and grow. And that is really unattractive. That's Josh's thoughts there. Another person says... Yeah, it can work, provided the person is open-minded enough to engage in respectful discussion. And Sarah on Instagram says, I'm currently in a relationship with someone with different views and it's not something I'd choose again. Oh, Sarah. Oh, okay. So some people are saying you can do it. Some are saying it's easy. Some are saying it's hard. That is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. See ya. Hack.